we are coming to the end of our Colossians series, and it's been a great, powerful little uh, letter written to this small little church. So greatly enjoyed, but looking forward to jumping into other letters such as John uh, in the summer. Many of you uh, have been to our house. A lot of you have came over and uh, got to spend some time with my family. We look forward to having more of you over as the summer months start coming. But if you've been to our house, it doesn't take very long to see that the Marsteller family is pretty darn good at one thing. No, it's, it's not leaving our socks around the house. That's me. I'm good at that. It's not leaving our toys around the house. That's Asa and Vera and also me. Uh, we're, three of us are good at that. And it's not decorating. Camille's pretty good at that. If you notice, I made hers positive. There's one thing that if you spend any amount of time with the Marsteller family, we're really good at. We love to talk. We are talkers. Oh, my goodness. And some of you who have been over, you're like, yeah, that is true. We can't even leave. They want to keep talking. I mean, Camille and I, we bonded over that. That's what we connected on. My very first day, my my second day in Spokane at Moody Bible Institute, I met Camille, and she invited me. She was an RA of about 12 students, and she invited me over to help paint these pots that she was doing as welcoming gifts. We probably did that for three or four hours and just painted like two of them. We just talked. We just talked, and thank goodness we bonded over that. If you're going to be a pastor's wife, you should probably embrace talking. But it's not just, I mean, if my mom was here, she would tell you even as a little kid, that's what I did. I talked. I mean, in grocery stores with people behind us checking out or the cashier, I would just talk. And as I got bigger and a little bit older, we were, we'd be in like buffet lines and she would catch me talking to people about anything, but mostly Ohio State football. She would catch me just having a conversation. Hey, you watching the game this weekend? Who's your favorite player? Complete strangers. And then now as a bigger kid, my job is to talk. That's what I do. We talk. My family, my kids are no different. Asa, who's a bit more eclectic in his conversations. You want to talk about Pokemon? Let's talk. You want to talk dinosaurs? Let's talk. You want to talk camping? Let's talk. You want to talk football? Let's talk. You want to talk Jesus? Let's talk. You want to talk about the weather? Asa could talk about anything. Vera, a little bit more like her mom. Don't ask her to do it publicly, but you want to talk about babies? Do it for hours. You want to talk about clothes? Probably longer. The Marstellers can talk. That's what we do. But it's not just us. I mean, all of us like to talk. I mean, we're in a culture of talking. We figure out different kind of apps and different ways to talk to people across the globe. We love to talk. That's what humans do. That's what we try to do. Even, even, we, we've even came up with ways for people who are limited or hindered in the ability to talk We come up with ways for them to communicate. That's what we do as humans. God's gifted us that way. He created us that way. Today, our text, though, is calling, is is Paul is basically making an argument that our talking as Christians is to be centered upon something, is to be renewed, is to be redeemed. Our talking as Christians, I believe Paul is arguing, is to be gospel-centered, Our speech is to be seasoned with the gospel. In our passage today, Dick Lucas in his commentary breaks it up into two clear sections. He puts it this way. In verses 2 through 4, it's about talking to God about people. 
It's our prayer life. And in verses 5 through 6, it's talking to people about God. It's our evangelism. Today, Paul is, gear, is shifting gears to talking about our prayer life, talking to God about people, and about our evangelism, talking to people about God. As we come to this section today, scholars and commentators make it pretty clear this is the end, basically the end of his exhortation to the Colossians. He's going to give some final greetings and some things he, want them, he wants them to know about certain people, but this, this is the end. This is the end of him calling the Colossians to live in light of the gospel message they've received. And it's very similar, it's very similar to the beginning of his letter. A lot of the words you're going to, you've, you heard, read this morning in this section have hints and traces back to the very beginning of this letter. Look at verses, uh, chapter 1, verse 3 with me. It says this, We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Look at verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing the knowledge of God. Key themes all throughout this letter has started in the very beginning of it, and now he's bringing it into his conclusion. But it's not just concluding the themes that he's been working through. It's also a conclusion of what he started to make an argument about in chapter 3, about this new self we have, this new life, being a new creation in Christ and through Christ. And what he says is, since you are that, you should live that way. Look, jump to chapter 3, verse 17 with me. It says this, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. If you're saying you're a Christian, if you're saying you've received the gospel message through grace and truth, you're a new creation. And therefore, everything you do should be done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So is that limited to anything? No. Carrie pointed out to us last week that that salvation, that new creation living, impacts your relationship as a wife impacts you as a husband to your wife, impacts you as a father to your children and children to your parents. It impacts your work statuses as, as the word used here is slaves or bond servants. If you miss that sermon, go back so you can understand what he's parsing out there as slaves. Or as masters, as employers, as bosses, that new creation living, that doing everything in the name of Jesus Christ impacts every part of your life. And Paul says the next thing it's to impact is your prayer life. How you talk to God about people. Look at verses uh, 2 through 4 with me this morning. It says this, Continue steadfastly in prayer and watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. 
In the conclusion of this letter, he's going to, he's going to give us two imperatives, two commands in which the Christian should live by. And the first one is, again, talking to God about people, praying. He is assuming that they're praying. That's why he says, continue in it. Continue to pray. But he says, there's, there's certain ways I want you to pray, certain things I want you to be praying about. And the first way he wants them to pray is with a watchfulness, being watchful. And what's he talking about? Well, this is why we had Mark chapter 14 read, because it's very similar to what Jesus is pointing out, what Jesus is saying to the disciples with them, to be watchful. But watchful for what? For temptation. Jump with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 14. I'll give you a second to get over there. In Mark chapter 14, we'll kind of go through the story a little bit. Jesus is, this is coming up to his crucifixion. This is the time where he's about to be taken to the cross, put on trial, and taken to what his mission is going to climax at, his death on the cross. And while he's going, what does he do? While this is about to happen, he goes and he wants to pray. He goes to the Father in prayer. And he takes with him James, John, and Peter, the same three disciples he took with him to the transfiguration. And he takes them and he says, stay here while I go pray. And while you're staying here, you pray also. He goes and he prays and comes back. What does he find? They're asleep. They're asleep. What does he say to them? Look at verse 38 with me. When he goes the second time to go pray, before he leaves, he says this. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. He tells them to be watchful, to not fall into temptation. And what temptation is he talking about? It's not, it doesn't seem very clear to us as we first read it. Like, what, what is he talking about? Well, I think there's two forms of temptation that are about to come to these disciples that he's afraid they'll fall into. The first form, I think, is defensiveness, and the second is to flee. They're going to be tempted to be defensive for what's about to happen, and they're tempted to flee. Look at verses 45 through 47 with me. And when he, Judas, came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said, that, said to them, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Luke and John make it pretty clear that that's Peter who cuts off the ear. And Peter, in the midst of what, while, while these, this mob is coming, what does he do? He gets defensive. He's ready to fight for Jesus, right? He gets this sword out. Scholars think it's a Roman sword. And he's, he's not trying to cut off an ear. He's trying to kill the guy. He wants to kill him. And this soldier, or whoever it might be, looks like he dodges it and catches his ear. And what's Jesus' response? In the other Gospels, he, he heals the ear. Was Peter prepared to, to follow Jesus' lead and follow Jesus' teaching? No. He follows his own understanding and he started to fight. But what's the second temptation that they face? The, temp, the second temptation they face is to flee. Flee. 
What do they do? In verse 50, it says, and they all left him and fled. Jesus was right. Peter, James, John, the disciples, their, 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 their spirit was willing. Peter said, I'll go with you to the end of this. I'll be with you. And he couldn't last. A lot of talk. His flesh was weak. He wasn't watchful in his prayer life. And to, to see that about himself, to recognize that when this comes to, to, its, to its logical conclusion, that Jesus taught what happened, he taught that, we will be, that I will be taken to the cross, I must die. Peter didn't cling to that and say, this must happen, and I'll follow Jesus. He clung to his own thoughts, his own understanding, his own response to Jesus being persecuted. This is what I believe is what Paul is urging the Colossians to be aware of. To be watchful in their prayers. To examine their hearts. To examine where their spirit might be willing, but their flesh is weak. They've had all these false teachings coming after them. They've had the, 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 the culture is starting to be against them. And Paul is saying, be watchful. Be aware of your temptation. Be ready that you might be tempted to defend, to be over-defensive, or you might be tempted to flee. I think that's what he's pulling at. But it's not just watchfulness he wants us to be aware of, to have in our prayer life. No. He wants us to also have thankfulness in our prayer life. As we've already seen, thankfulness is a key theme of Colossians. Seven times in this letter, Paul refers to being thankful. That's almost once to twice per chapter he brings up being thankful. But thankful for what? If you go back and read where thankfulness is, is at in the text, it's usually always paired with the gospel. Being thankful for the salvation we've received through and in Christ Jesus. He wants the Colossian church, he doesn't want the Colossians church to become numb to the gospel. He wants them to be constantly in a posture of being thankful for it. Does this mean though, that the Colossian church, can't, they can't pray for anything else? That they can't come to the Lord when things are hard in family life or with relationships? No, not at all. I mean, just think of the Lord's prayer. He gives, the Lord Jesus himself gives us a template on how to pray and it involves all those things. It involves all the aspects of life. But Paul's aware of something. That if you lose your thankfulness, it does something to our prayer life. I mean, I just think of my own prayer life. And when I, and this off, honestly, it happens way too often. When I lose my thankfulness, my awe, my, my deep sense of need for the gospel that I'm not deserving of, when I lose that, which sadly sometimes that happens, my, my, my prayer life can become pretty shallow. It can become pretty stale. It doesn't have a richness. It doesn't have a depth to it that re recognizes that I'm in so much need of the gospel in my life. That I'm in so much need of, of Christ's saving work. That I'm in need of the Father to send the Son and Him to take on flesh to live a life that I can't live on my behalf. And that I'm in need of Him to go to the cross and pay the penalty I can't pay. I'm in need of that. And to be thankful for that, to have a gratitude in my prayer life. That causes me then not to just stay 
focused on myself. You see, because Paul has two people groups in mind for our prayer life when we're talking to God about people. He starts first with ourselves, right? Being watchful in our prayers, being thankful. But then there's a second group of people that when we have a thankfulness for the gospel, when we have a, a recognition that we're in need, desperate need of his saving work on the cross, it should motivate our hearts to pray for the gospel message to be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. Look at verses 3 through 4 with me. Sorry, jump back to Colossians. And look at verses 3 through 4. It says this, At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. The first group of people we should be praying for is ourselves. We should be praying with a watchfulness and a thankfulness for what God has done in our lives and being prepared for what the world may throw at us. The second group of people that Paul says should be praying for is him and those with him proclaiming the gospel. Now, let me ask you this. If you got a phone call from someone in prison and they said, hey, can you be praying for me? What do you think they would say? What do you think their prayer request would be? Probably to get out of prison, right? Pray for me that my next court hearing, I would get an op- that the judge would be gracious to me and I'd be able to get out. Or pray for my safety. Pray for my, that, that I would be out of here soon, right? But what we would not expect is that they would pray for an opportunity to do the exact same thing that got them in there. Right? I mean, come on, seriously, you wouldn't hear someone go, hey, can you pray for me to have an opportunity to rob someone again? No, we wouldn't do that. That would never happen. But what does Paul do? Paul prays for an opportunity to do the exact same thing that got him in there. I mean, what nerve does he have to say, hey, pray that I do the same thing that got me in here in the first place? And you know what? Not only pray for that, pray that I do it really, 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 really well. Pray for the Lord to open doors for me, to proclaim the gospel. Pray, not only that the door is open, but that I may be clear in how I proclaim it. And I started thinking about this. I was like, when he asked for clarity, think about that. He asked for clarity so they can know what they're either accepting, receiving, that they would clearly see their need for Jesus Christ, but also (laughs) that clarity might keep him in there longer because now they even have a stronger grasp of what he's saying and how offended they are by it. You see, Paul doesn't see prison as necessarily something to get out of. Of course, he doesn't like being there. It's horrible. But he sees it as an opportunity for the gospel that the Lord can open up doors even in prison. And go read Acts. He takes advantage of that. I mean, God literally, I mean, there's a a scene where he's in prison and the prison walls are broke down, he could leave, and he stays. Because it proclaims the gospel to the guard that he stayed. <laughs> That's what Paul's looking for. And we, we love, in our, in our day and age, we love kind of how he spiritualizes this by asking for a door to be open. I mean, a lot of times we have prayer requests like that, right? Pray that God would open a door for this job. That could have this job. Pray that God opens a door for this relationship. 
You know what kind of doors God wants to open? Gospel doors. That's the doors he opens. He wants to open gospel doors, gospel opportunities for those who have been commissioned and sent to go proclaim the gospel. Friends, we have brothers and sisters who we've sent to regions of the earth, of the world that are really hard to live in. This is their prayer. This is their prayer. This is the Tangway's prayer. This is the Anderson's prayer. This is their prayer that they would have opportunities. Yes, some of them are facing sickness. Some of them are facing job loss. Some of them are facing really hard things that they ask prayer for. Pray for those things as well. But their prayer is for opportunities to proclaim the gospel, to build relationships, to get jobs that allow them to stay, to stay longer to proclaim the gospel. Are we praying for them? Are they in our personal prayer life? It's not just missionaries. It's your pastors as well. Carrie, Jay, Trevor, myself. We need your prayers. Sometimes people ask, how can I get involved? Your prayer life is really a great way to get involved. Are you praying for us to have opportunities to proclaim the gospel? Not only on Sundays, but even outside of these walls, opportunities to proclaim the gospel. Are you praying for our clarity? I hope you're praying for it right now, please. <laughs> are you praying for that? I know some of you are. I've had many of you come and tell us, hey, we're praying for you. I've heard you pray for us, and I appreciate that. And thank you so much for praying for us and constantly praying for us. Please keep doing that. And this, Paul's not writing this to bring guilt it. No, he's writing this. So in your prayer life, this new creation you have because of Christ Jesus, this new life you have, and trying to do everything to his glory, that your prayer life is even impacted. That your prayer life for yourself is impacted. And that your prayer life for others who are out proclaiming the gospel, some that are even in hardships such as prison for Paul or different countries that are hostile to it, your life, your prayer life would be impacted to pray for them. That as you talk to God about people, it would be gospel-centered. That's what Paul is hoping to have happen. Because you see, for Paul, this new self that, we've, that he's called us to put on must not only impact our family life, our work life, but it also must impact our prayer life. But it's not just our prayer life that Paul says the God, this gospel-centered way of living and talking should be impacted it's also our social life. Our evangelism must also be impacted by the gospel, done to the glory of Jesus Christ. As Dick Lucas says, this second part is about talking to people about God. Look at verses 5 through 6 with me. It says this, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Paul, again, in his closing letter, is bringing all these different themes that he's been working through this letter together. And one key theme that's been throughout the whole letter is actually probably the main theme of this letter is this idea of walking. How you walk, how you live your life. I mean, turn over to chapter 2, verse 6 with me. 
This is the theme, this is the key verse to all of Colossians. It says this, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. I mean, there's that word thanksgiving again as well. The, Paul has been concerned most of this letter, if not all of it, about how we live out this salvation we proclaim to have, how the Colossian church lives out their faith. I mean, he said that's what he's thankful for because he's heard how they're living it out. But now, he says, I'm also concerned with how you live it out among outsiders. Outsiders meaning, as we often say, non-believers, those who are not Christians. How are you living out your faith among them? And this is, this is the second imperative, the second command of this small section. As believers, as insiders, you could say, we are to walk in wisdom, making the best use of the time. Now that phrase, best use of the time, is, might sound eerily similar to redeeming the time that we hear uh, that Paul uses in Ephesians, which is sometimes, which is translated there, sometimes it's also make the best use of, sometimes it's redeeming the time. And in both cases, Paul has this kind of approach to, to time in mind. It means to, the Greek kind of means to buy up, to snatch up, to, to take as much of it as you can, to take advantage of this little amount that's given to you and use it to the God's glory as much as you can. Paul's saying, listen, this life is short and you only have so much time in it, so make the best use of it. And if we were to survey everyone in here, and then if we went and surveyed all of Spokane, or we just went down to the mall and asked people, what's the best use of your time? What do you think people would say? I mean, you'd probably hear a lot of different really good things. Be productive. Get a good job. Find someone to live your life with. Get married. Have children. Invest in your family. Travel. Go on vacation. Build a nest egg. Save your money. All those things, right? Those are all really, really good things. Those are things we should probably be pursuing. But what does Paul say is the best use of your time? What does Paul say walking in wisdom looks like? I mean, he assumes already that you're living among non-believers. That you're, that you're rubbing shoulders with them at work or your neighbors or at school. He's assuming that. And to some extent, if we're not doing that, there's a little bit of a problem. We should be. We should be living amongst non-believers. That, that's just the reality of the world we live in. So he's assuming that. So when he says make the best use of your time, what does he mean? What is he thinking? Well, again, I think he means how you talk to them about Jesus. He's assuming that that conversation will come up. He's assuming that it has to. If you're actually living your life out in a way that brings glory to Christ, that conversation must happen. Look at verse 6 with me. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Paul is saying that even our interactions with non-believers must be done in the name of Christ. And how is this done? How do we interact with believers in the name of Christ? It's walking in wisdom, but it's also talking about him. Now, 
There's an age-old phrase that I heard a lot in college, and I still hear to this day, that's accredited to uh, St. Francis of Assisi, that says, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Which, as one article puts, is a little ironic coming from a guy who is notorious for always preaching the gospel. So much so that there's a painting of him talking to birds, and the assumption is he's talking to the birds about the gospel. (laughs) That's what he did. He proclaimed it. The problem is we've taken that and we thought, hey, we can live amongst non-believers, have these friendships, and never have to articulate our faith. That's not what Paul's saying here. What Paul's saying here is that actually you must be prepared to articulate your faith. Peter, in his letter, says you must be prepared to always give an answer for your faith. Talking is a part of it. But then Paul here is saying, but there's a way you ought to do that. There's a way you ought to be talking about your faith. Now, there is a little bit of a distinction that Paul's been making here that both Dick Lucas and John Woodhouse and their commentaries point out and support each other in, is that sometimes we look and we go, see, we're all supposed to be preaching. We're all preachers. Not really. Paul is the preacher in this situation. Paul is the one that's asking for opportunities to preach and proclaim the gospel. What he's saying to the Colossian churches is that you don't need to be prepared to preach. You need to be prepared to give an answer. You need to be prepared to give an answer in a a way that reflects Christ. Think think back to the Peter, James, and John uh, story, specifically Peter. When the world came to take Jesus, when when the guards came to take Jesus, what was his response? When they came and they ultimately started questioning, who is Jesus? Who are you? Who do you say you are? Which took him to the cross. What was his response? It was to get defensive, to get a sword out, ready to fight. He was ready to fight on behalf of Jesus, to take on the world. How often is that us? How often do so many of us sharpen our Facebook status swords to go against the world? To stand up for Jesus? To defend him at all costs? How many of us are just swinging swords and catching some ears? My friends, a lot of us have outsiders, not just at work, but in our home. And David's prayer just reminded me, it's Pride Month. How are we talking about Pride Month in our home among outsiders? Are we just swinging swords? Are we just prepared when our kids have questions to give them sermons? Or to give them answers that are gracious, seasoned with salt? But what's the second temptation that we should be watchful for. I think it's the temptation of fleeing. That often when the world brings its questions, sometimes hostile, sometimes willing to hear, what can be our tendency like it was for the disciples? It's to run. It's to hide. I have a lot of friends right now who are doing that. 
The world that they live in is becoming more and more hostile to the gospel that they say they believe in. It's becoming more and more hostile to the teachings of scriptures. And when the questions are presented, whether personally or nationally, what's happening? They're hiding. They're running. They're afraid. I don't blame them. I've missed many opportunities to proclaim the gospel because I was fearful of someone's response. Is our prayer life watchful? So we can see when the questions are brought to us amongst those we live with who aren't believers, are we prepared to give an answer that reflects Christ as gracious and seasoned with salt? Because how did Jesus respond in the garden? Think back to that. How did he respond? When the world came and questioning who he is, who approached him like a robber, though he's never been that, how did he respond? Did he say, good job, Peter, here's another sword, go get him? Or did he run with them and flee to protect himself? No. Before they even came, what was he doing? He was praying, preparing himself, going to the Father and saying what? Take this cup from me. Take this his humanity was showing there, saying, I'm scared to take this, but in his own way, he prayed for a door to be open. Not my will, but your will be done. Why? Why did he pray that? Because he recognizes he is the door. He recognizes that for the gospel to be clearly seen, he must go to the cross and rise again from the grave. For the message that the Apostle Paul, that preachers and evangelists are to give, he must go to the cross and rise again. For the salvation we're to be thankful for, he must see the mission and the will of God the Father through. Even death on a cross. You see, the world did not like his answer. And the result was that they put him on a cross. Sometimes our answers will be offensive. Our tone, our demeanor doesn't have to be. Just like Christ, like a, like a lamb to slaughter. He was gracious. His answers were seasoned with salt, even if it came off too truthful. You see, I think this is why Paul is saying our prayer life, we must be watchful. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We must live in thankfulness for what he did for us on the cross. And we must be prepared to live amongst believers with an answer that is gracious and seasoned with salt. Because the reality is Christ is the source of our thankfulness. He is the message that preachers and missionaries should be proclaiming. And he's our answer to outsiders. May our talking to God and to others be centered on him. Let's pray. Father, too often our speech, our talk is not centered on you. Even when we come and approach you. Be with those who are striving to proclaim the gospel day in and day out. Be with those who are living amongst outsiders. That they would be prepared to give an answer for the gospel that they believe in. Seasoned with grace and truth glorifying you. Amen.